They're Australia's best worst sellers, the Mazda, Ford and Sanyong cars and SUVs that might be off your radar but deserve consideration. Yes, it's time to strap in for another edition of the Cars Guide podcast, the show that takes you beyond the test drive. This is episode number 207, The Cars We Hate to Love. I'm Cars Guide Deputy Editor James, and joining me and looking at these quality new car options hiding in plain sight are news editor Tung. Howdy. And key contributor Chesto. Howdy, all. We'll also look at the fresh metal we've been driving this week and dive into your feedback. YouTubers, if you want to plot your own adventure, you can jump ahead courtesy of the time codes in the notes below, and you can click on the chapter markers in the timeline. So let's get into some cars we think deserve more attention. Mm -hmm. Our very own Byron authored a story this week uh, looking at cars that deserve more attention, more sales. He thinks they're they're better than their uh, scorecard in the monthly registrations would indicate. And he said, he he drew an analogy. He said, you know, um, some beloved artists are are only appreciated decades after they've, they've shuffled off this mortal coil. Vincent van Gogh died a pauper. Are we missing some absolute gems um, that are, you know, magnificent sales losers? And he looked at seven cars, and I thought it would be uh, fun for us to step through each of them, and then maybe at the end talk about uh, what we might be able to add to the list. See, I do think linking Sangyong to Vincent Van Gogh might be a bit of a stretch. <laughs> that was in his, that, was, that was his early years where he was um, he was experimenting. Uh, yeah, let's put it that way. Uh, but they're worth a lot, those early Sanyong uh, yeah. Van Goghs. <laughs> or should I say Van Gogh? Yeah, um, all right. Now, the first one that Byron called out is, i got to say, over time and over successive generations, um, a favourite of mine, the Ford Fiesta ST. Mm, classic little thing, yeah. And it's it's like the last Fiesta standing in that it's, it's the only one. There used to be various versions, but now it's a six-speed manual, Little firecracker, three-cylinder turbo, um, pretty decent level of equipment. And as, as Byron says, big personality, just 321 of them sold so far in, in 2021. What do you guys make of that car? This one's a bit of a head-scratcher, right? Fiesta ST is a critical darling amongst you know, mm-hmm. our peers. Um, I think everyone who's driven that car absolutely loves that car. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's at a really affordable price. I would take one you know, over a, a GR Yaris, certainly. Um, and when you're driving it on the road, you know, that difference in performance uh, is not noticeable. And it's probably going to be the last Fiesta that we see here. Um, so, it, 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 you know, it boggles my mind that more people aren't flocking to this car. Do, do, you, see, do you reckon it's a GR Yaris competitor? I, I think the GR Yaris is, is a, a couple of tiers up in terms of its outright performance is it not more a apollo gti or look you're absolutely right i would say on the road driving it day to day you're not going to notice the difference in performance but that's fair that's fair yeah okay i get you i actually think it's more about the hype you know i think um ford to its credit it sells a lot of ranges and is deemed by many to be a ranger company so really you could kind of look across the broader ford portfolio and see plenty of unloved heroes there that Mm. that that they don't sell many of. For some reason, Ford has become the sort of Mustang and Ranger company, and in later years, almost exclusively the Ranger company. So I just think when the Yaris came, there was so much hype about it. There was so much excitement that people wanted to get behind the wheel of this thing. The people were booking it before they were putting deposits down before they'd even driven it. You just saw that level of excitement around the Fiesta ST, perhaps because it's a continuing model rather than an all-new one, but it's certainly uh, an unloved gem. I think it's an awesome little thing. 
Yep. I got to say, I preferred the previous generation, the naturally aspirated car. Um, somehow it had that extra um, sense of cohesion about it. Um, and that's just the difference between an Atmo engine and a turbo, I suppose. But it's, this current one is still a ton of fun. It's one of those cars where just in day-to-day driving, almost to your point, Tung, you can have a heap of fun in it. Mm-hmm. Just going from one set of traffic lights to the next, there's yeah. a sense of engagement and involvement that puts a smile on your face. You don't have to be going off to your favourite road. It's just a day-to-day joy to drive. And the truth is you never do. I mean, that's the reality. Whether you're buying a Porsche 911 or a Fiesta ST, the whole, this concept that you're going to be constantly driving Alpine roads, honestly, you're going to be constantly <laughs> yes. stuck in traffic occasionally, <laughs> very occasionally, we had to put your foot down somewhere. So question without notice and perhaps a controversial one, are they bad sales? I mean, it, you know, it's okay. a, it's a micro segment. It's a hot hatch. It's so you, you're basically in a tiny little vehicle segment. Then you're splintering it further down into the performance end. So, yep. what what does the and I'm a question without notice because I don't know the answer. What does yep. the Polo GTI sell, for example? Hold tough on, to, tough to know, isn't it? Because oh, because uh, I don't think we get a breakout oh, of GTI across Polo. So yep. Polo uh, in a month is currently selling about 350 examples. So mm-hmm. as to what proportion of that would be uh, GTIs, uh, I don't know. So a great, I think a great indicator is going to be uh, when Hyundai i20N starts hitting the market. And uh, that yeah, thing, that's a more apples to apples comparison, isn't it? But I've driven the prototype of that thing, and uh, which, you know, by Hyundai prototype is basically a finished car with some stickers on it. Uh, and it is very good, like yep. really fun. All right. Well, that's a fair point, Chester, because, you know, Polo as a whole is not selling a whole lot more than uh, Fiesta ST. So, yeah. yeah well, okay. So, Polo did 350 in a month. Fiesta ST did 220. Oh, sorry. So far this year. Yes, that's a huge difference. Big pardon. Yeah, it's uh, massive egg on my face. Okay. Um, now, let's move on to the next car that Byron's called out, which is one of two Peugeots that has made this list. And mm. it's the 3008. Um, and Byron characterizes it as a mainstream SUV. With gorgeous design, stunning interior, excellent dynamics, family-friendly practicality, real refinement as opposed to what synthetic refinement, and oodles of personality. So, um, and he's saying that people are opting for your mainstream usual suspects like an Audi Q3 or a BMW X1, uh, even Lexus NX and Volvo XC40. So what is it about the Peugeot 3008 uh, that people are missing? I can answer this one for Go you. Go for it. Go a, for it. I agree with everything Byron said. I think that's a cracking car, right? <clears throat> a controversial viewpoint number two for the uh, for the morning. People say that Australia <laughs> is this hyper-competitive vehicle market, right? I don't believe that's actually true. We, we, we have, like, I think somewhere in the vicinity of 25% of new models that are sold in this country are Toyotas. So that takes a lot of the the, uh, the, the market away. Then really the remaining sort of top eight brands fight over the remaining 75%. Anyone outside that is really just an outlier picking up the scraps realistically, right? Sure. So, and Peugeot falls into that category. There, it, it really is a fabulous car with a fantastic interior, super practical, super stylish and super premium feeling. But there's not that many people left after you, after you take out your Volkswagens, your Audis, your BMWs, your Mercedes, your Toyotas, all those sort of top eight, the top 10 brands. There's not that many people left to well, have. That's an interesting point. I suppose uh, it's an interesting point you raise, but um, if you're a brand looking to come into the Australian market, that's what you're weighing up. Yeah, it's a, it's a great way of putting it, but it is very competitive amongst those, you know, seagulls on the edge fighting over a chip. That's right. Um, yes. But, but, but 
amongst those brands, I would argue Peugeot is pretty much invisible. Yeah. Um, you know, I, we, we do our bit and we, we cover those products because people want to know about it. But in terms of mainstream mass communication, mass marketing of the Peugeot brand, um, it's completely missing in action. It's just not on people's radar. And then, but they're not, they're not overly cheap anymore either, Peugeots. You know, they are sort of asking premium prices. And, and I, I do think there's a feeling of the reason Toyota sells as many cars as it does, for example, is because people like <laughs> familiarity. There's, there's a ghost in your house, Tom. Just, <laughs> I don't mean to alarm you. Um, but, but there's a sense of like familiarity and comfort in buying a vehicle from, from Toyota, for example. And same on the premium side. There's a feeling of like of comfort in buying an Audi, a BMW or Mercedes. But when you're talking about dropping significant money on mm. a premium brand that you don't know that much about and isn't really sort of yep. fighting in the top tier, it, it, I guess it does feel like a risk for people. I mean, one word, thing, right? yeah, resale. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, I'm going to buy a RAV4 because I've bought a RAV4 in the past or, yeah. you know, my sister has a RAV4 or my neighbor has a CX-5. I'm going to go for what's safe and what I can see and what's known. That's yes. right. Unfortunately, Peugeot is just a little bit too invisible and a little bit too niche. Uh, it's interesting. The there are little veins of that with Peugeots in that I've uh, come across families that just hand down their Peugeots, never sell mm-hmm. them, and they end up with, you know, multiples, multiple cars. Uh, and they love Persia because they trust it. Um, but yes, that's not a broadly held sentiment. Uh, and that's not an attack on Peugeot, by the way, because I actually think they've never been a better brand. They, they are making really good cars now that, that do compete on, on every level, you know. So um, yep. it's just about that brand recognition in Australia, I think. All right. Well, let's let's move to a brand that does have some, some uh, salience in, in the market. And Byron kicked it off by saying, quick, can you name another six-door wagon? And uh, the answer, the answer to that question is the Mini Clubman, um, and he's saying it has so much in its favour: unbridled Britishness, um, BMW brains, and bonkers packaging. His words, not mine. Um, and yet, it sells in small numbers. Um, it, he, he sees it as the coolest new Mini there is, um, alongside, again, to quote Byron, the unrelenting twee retro silliness of its siblings. Um, <laughs> So BMW shifts 10 times more of the similarly priced one series um, than you do of the Mini Clubman. I think I, I don't see the the retro, twee retro mm. silliness. I quite like New Mini in any of its iterations. Yeah. Um, but it, it is, um, it's just not on people's shopping lists. I can answer this one too. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to jump in here, right? I, cool. I, I, I do think it's like be it when they did the 500X and, and 500L and all those things. If you are buying a Mini, I think you want that retro sort of micro car Mini feel. I think that's really what you're shopping for. If you want a bigger car and mm. for that money, you can walk across to BMW or to Mercedes or to Audi or to any other premium sort of player and get mm. a similar vehicle for the same money. What you're buying with Mini, in my opinion, if I was ever to buy a Mini, and I'm like you, JC, I love the new Minis and, and, and the old ones and everything in between, but I would be shopping at the small, you know, the micro car end of the market because right. to me, that's what Mini is. Mini isn't a, a, a bigger car maker, you know, mm. right there in the name. <laughs> it, goes against, it goes against its brand uh, philosophy, yeah, doesn't it? And I'm, I'm sure if you look at the sales charts, it's it's the countrymen, it's the clubmen, you know, they're the ones that are selling in lower numbers compared to, you know, the hatch and yes. the smaller micro, um, you know, size of that car. It's interesting, isn't it? I think there was a period there where BMW got a bit greedy with Mini. Um, yeah. That they'd, they'd had some success with it and then started to splinter it off into all oh, of these derivatives. Mini Coupe. The low point was the Mini Roadster or the Coupe or the back you know, of the those back two, back the back one that had cap, that baseball yeah. cap backwards. 
that was just crazy. They were trying to to make a BMW out of Mini, and it's not that. So maybe the Clubman is just uh, a byproduct of that kind of, well, we've got to make lots and lots of derivatives because that's what we do rather than sticking to your knitting yeah. and doing, you know, small, fun cars. I also think for what it's worth that like the Fiat 500, which I think is this timeless vehicle design, and like the Mini, the new Mini is a is great representation of the old Mini, in my opinion, the, the, the small micro car. But yep. the bigger that design gets, the worse it looks, in my mm, opinion. Yep. The more you try Agreed. to stretch the angles and stretch the stretch the dimensions, the worse that design gets, you know. Well, once once you see an image of a current, you know, new Fiat 500 next to an original mm. Cinquecento, um, it's massive. It's yeah. so huge. That, that little Fiat was tiny. It yeah. was just barely a couple mm. of people with a steel skin around them. Yeah. Um, and even the mini, the base, you know, little, uh, what do they call it? The hatch uh, <coughs> is enormous compared to an original yeah. classic mini. Yeah. Um, so to make them even bigger, I take your point to it does go against the ethos of the brand. And as you say, Chesto, it's written on it. It's yeah. meant to be mini. That's right. <laughs> okay. That's an interesting take on it. Well, here's Peugeot's uh, second player in, in uh, Byron's list. And I know, Chesto, I remember you drove this car at launch, which is the 508. And, you know, Byron says striking, stirring alternative to more mundane sedans, even, you know, European sedans like the Passat mm-hmm. or out of Japan like the Accord. It's just that sedans aren't a thing. People are buying SUVs hand yeah. over fist. Um, he says it's low slung, sleek. Uh, it's great to drive. It's, it's a sports sedan. Um, but they're just not interested in non-German Euros. Yeah. And 89 of them have been sold in Australia so far this year, which is which is barely worth turning up, um, isn't it? Yeah, yes, uh, that is tough. But mate, the, it is a good looking car and wagon form especially. But it's a um, it's a really nice car to both look at and drive. In fact, my wife still describes it as the best looking car we've had in the house. Fantastic. Um, she she yeah. loves it. Well, well, to, yeah, so to like, me, it's just the wrong market. The German, the, you cannot. Uh, kind of divorce a car's ethnic origin from its appeal as a brand. Mm-hmm. And Germany is known as a, com- a country that has terrific engineering and, mm-hmm. and all of those things. And that plays out in the cars that it makes, you know, German engineering, it, it counts for something. Mm-hmm. France is about fashion and art and mm-hmm. food and all of these great things, but not necessarily cars you know it's just not a car making nation it's definitely european and there's a certain amount of cachet that goes with that that's right germany owns the kind of well-engineered car thing and so aside from the fact that peugeot's good at little hatches and smaller suvs and this is a larger vehicle there's just not that immediate association between France and great cars. But, but never discount, discount the power of the badge either, JC. You know, we, we know that we look, we know that at least part of the reason people are bo- parking a BMW, Mercedes or Audi on their driveway is so people can see the badge BMW, Mercedes or Audi. Now, does Peugeot necessarily have that same instant brand recognition of like, oh, gee, James is going pretty good. He's got the new BMW. He's got a Peugeot. Mm. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> oh, that's right. You know well, what I mean? But- that, that plays a factor too. I find that interesting, Chester, because often you'll hear people justifying their purchase of a premium. You're like, oh, look, it's all about the safety. Yeah. And it's yeah. all about the, the engineering and the quality. And it's about the value. No, no, no. It's yeah. about the badge on the bonnet. You know, oh, when you really cut to the such chase. A shame. Such a shame, isn't it? Because I think that 508 looks better than like a 3 Series yeah, or too. a C-Class, you know? 
I'd have one of those parked on my driveway over any of those German competitors. And it's, it's way cheaper as well. And mate, cool. if it's about safety and reliability, let me walk you into this Kia dealership where you'll get <laughs> all the equipment and a seven-year warranty. If it's only about safety Utterly. and reliability. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. All right. Now, let's move on. Now, the Alfa Romeo Giulia, my experience with that car has only been positive. I, I think it's in, in various grades and, and uh, what have you. I really do admire this car. It arrived in 2017, and Byron calls out the fact that there were some, some issues around quality. There were some glitches early owners uh, suffered. He says that in 2021, some of those have been engineered out, um, took out what he describes as rubbish multimedia. It's been updated. Um, they're being built with, built with better materials, raft of improvements, a Series 2 facelift, uh, and yet, it's nowhere against uh, its class competitors, and it's probably apropos of the conversation we were just having about yeah. uh, badge recognition. But I've got to say, the number yeah. of times the Alpha brand has switched between either imported distributors or direct subsidiaries, <laughs> and I've heard the speech, look, this is the renaissance for Alfa Romeo, and we're going to sell 5,000 within the first, first five years, and then we'll move on. But, and it never happens, and I'm... I'm, I'm would bet money on me hearing that speech again um, sometime in the future. Yep. It's just not going anywhere. I agree with you, JC. It is badge recognition, but just not not in the, not in quite the same way. I, look, I, I think that Alfa Romeo had a chance. I, I love Alfa. I think everybody loves Alfa. If you like cars, you like Alfa. It's this passionate Italian brand. You, you want to see it do well. But the, the fact that they relaunched that brand with that vehicle and it had glitches, like I, I know they've engineered them out, um, but... And yep. it's, a, it, it's a much better car now than it was when it launched. And frankly, I liked it when it launched. But this, yep. whole, this whole concept of like, this is a new Alpha, that, that sort mm. of questionable history of Alpha Romeo reliability is behind us. But this one still has some glitches we're working out. It's like, well, you know, it, it's, that was just not the way to, to necessarily relaunch that brand. You know, that, that car should yep. have been yep. rock solid. See, I think their problem is momentum. You know, they, there was a huge marketing push. There was this huge spend on building that platform and building that car. And, you know, to its credit, the Julia is a fantastic car. Mm. Uh, and they, they just never capitalized on that. Uh, mm. You know, you look at the, the playbook from, you know, BMW, Audi, Mercedes-Benz. It's like, sure, here's a three series. But now here's a three series wagon. And here's a four series. Here's sure. a four series convertible. Yeah. And Alfa Romeo had a Julia and a Stelvio. And that was it. Yeah. They, they couldn't carry that momentum you know, forward in any meaningful way. And it, now they've just ditched all their plans it, and redone it, everything again. Is it possibly the Alfa Romeo culture that says, you know, we've got this great car, we're not going to build these derivatives, we're going to do a QV, and it's going to be a brawny, you know, muscular performance car as a halo, and that'll help us sell the others? Is that is the way? That I think, JC, I, I, so look, one thing I'd say about the Julia and the Stelvio, especially the Q or QV or Q as it was called a little later, mm. is they're really fantastic dynamic cars they were really fun to drive you know they, they they were so sharp with a huge smile on your face sounded amazing and were so italian in that sense but i think the other the issue they had with those launch cars was that it was almost too italian you know when you get into a ferrari and it's like oh look the performance is on point it looks amazing and yet it's got this like atari based infotainment system that no one can figure out it keeps glitching in and out yeah right give it right because it's because you're driving a supercar the same kind of thing happened here. They, they had these amazing cars that were amazing to drive, but the, the infotainment systems were a little bit questionable. The, the cabin materials in, in, in places were a little bit questionable. And I think they kind of 
temporarily forgot why most people buy a three series. It's not yeah. because they want to drive down an Alpine road. It's because they're driving it to the office and, and they Do, want. Does the Ferrari Atari multimedia play ET the game? Uh, which was <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but do, but do you know what I mean? Put, like, put I, I it think this way. Put it this way. Further down the list than they were perhaps anticipating. Three series so far this year. Three thousand. Mm. Um, Julia barely cracking two fifty. Yeah. So I mean, there are people out there. Two fifty. All right. Maybe you can you can make decent money on two hundred and fifty cars if if you really trim down your your means of delivering it. But um, yeah, it's, it's not, not really not, in the I game. I want to see them come back in a huge way after a I love them. I think the brand is. I think that Julia is sexy as hell. I, I just think they need an expanded model lineup now. Uh, as Byron rightly points out, changes to the Julia are happening all the time. I think they're heading in the right direction, certainly much more so than, than, than when they were doing Julietas and stuff like that. But yeah. um, And the Mito. The we Mito. Just, I need to grow now, you know. We yeah. just have a bit of, bit of momentum. Yeah, that's to Tung's point. Momentum indeed. Now let's hit the seventh uh, of Byron's picks uh, of unloved gems, and it's a Mazda, Mazda 6. So this current car has been around with with updates along the way for a decade. Yeah. Um, it, it arrived in, in 2012. It's about to turn 10, put it that way. And Byron says that its currency, in that people are still uh, drawn to it in a certain number, is about the rightness of its, of its great design. He says it's polished, sophisticated, rewarding to drive. Uh, but buyers abandoned sedans yonks ago. Um, and the Camry dominates sedans anyway. They've got all of the market and everyone else is just squabbling over little bits and pieces. So a car that once held a lot of cachet in the market has yeah. seemingly fallen away. What do you make of that, Tung? Is a Mazda 6 something that you'd be, now as a family person, um, you'd be considering? I, I had considered a Mazda 6 before I bought the Skoda Octavia, actually. Um, I, I think if you, if you stack the 2021 Mazda 6 up against its 20. 12 launch car like it is a glow up of epic proportions they might look similar on the outside but the the cabin materials the interior yeah, the multimedia right. system everything is is just so it's leagues the car right now is leagues uh, you know better than it was before yeah. um, and those little tiny you know yearly updates that mazda apply to their to their vehicles um, has really turned the Mazda 6 into something that was more of a, you know, family sedan runabout Camry rival into something that's genuinely a step above and almost premium. Well, the next opinion. one's going to be rear-wheel drive, isn't it? Yep. Yep. With Which six will be similar engines as well. That's a proper proper premium play. They were already halfway to the premium play with that vehicle. The, a new rear-wheel drive platform will do exactly that. For what mm-hmm. it's worth, I... I just think it was a victim of the times, that car. I've always been a huge fan of it. It's always been one of my favourite Mazda products, in fact. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just think it's, uh, you know, people shopping for SUVs instead, but that uh, doesn't take anything away from that thing. It is a good car. And Mazda you know, cars too, just quietly. So It's it's interesting, uh, Tung, you mentioned about the gradual improvement, uh, which is great. Rather than saving it for, for a, a dedicated update, just continual improvements, which is fantastic. Mm. It operates in reverse as well. I remember... When the Mazda One Two One, the bubble version, the little uh, jelly bean One Two One arrived, uh, over time it had spec taken out of it, and in terms of the production as well, you noticed oh, there's not a top coat around the paint uh, around the boot lid, and oh, there's been a bit of sound deadening taken out from here and there, and it's in darker. This program, this program, just let's take a bit of cost out here and there as the model mm, yeah, goes on. Right. So it does it does cut both ways, but. Let's uh, talk about what we'd add to the list. Chesto, first of all, what 
car would you add to the list? I, I, I feel the closeness of it. <laughs> Just behind me there. So, look, I would, I would absolutely add the Alfa Romeo four C to that list. It was not a perfect car by, um, you know, by most most measures, but it, it is pr- a proper cut price supercar. I mean, we are, we are talking about a carbon fiber tub machine that looks the absolute business, weighs a ton, and was yours for I think from memory eighty nine grand. Yep. Which is unbelievable. I mean, you were, you're genuinely talking like Ferrari engineering for, for $89,000. And that's dramatic. When, when you do see one in traffic, it really catches your eye. It's a dramatic, classic mini supercar shape. Yeah, and it's that, I, I think, it, you know, from memory now, it came out in 2012. I'm just looking it up, actually. 2015, maybe? Mm. Um, no, so, it was earlier. 2012. I remember going to the launch. Oh, the internet, I think the Australian launch might have been 2015, potentially. Okay. Yep, and then the international launch was before that, obviously, mate. Um, but it still, to me, it still looks timeless. We were talking before the podcast began, James, about the headlight clusters in Australia not being our favourite, but remove yep. those, and I still think it's this gorgeous, timeless design. And the fact that you can pick one up secondhand now for around sixty-five grand, uh, it's it, it remains a lot of car for that. Would be a keeper, as we we're saying, carbon fibre tub, the whole yep. bit. It's mm. it's properly exotic, and at at certain time, people were saying it should be a Dino. It should yeah. be, you know, uh, in a similar fashion to the first Dinos, well, um, a subset for Ferrari. That it kind of almost was a Ferrari, then it almost was a Maserati, and then it decided to become the, the halo An alpha. for Romeo. But if you look at the, the new MC20 Maserati, for example, which is going to be a lot more money, obviously, it's not a million miles off the 4C, similar carbon mm. fiber tubs, similar dimensions, different body shells, certainly, but... Um, yeah, I mean, similar that, that that this winning formula kind of continues. If you can point me to a brand new supercar for eighty nine grand, I'll be shocked. <laughs> cool, fair challenge. Now, Tung, yep. the challenge is with you. What would you add to the list in terms of unloved gems? I think I'm going to go the other direction, uh, the absolute opposite of a supercar, um, and nominate the Volkswagen Up. Um, you know, this yep. was a, a quirky, you know, micro hatchback that Volkswagen brought out to Australia in twenty, I want to say twenty eleven, late twenty eleven. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, its sales were stymied by the fact that it was offered with a manual gearbox only. Only, yes. Uh, and so and little, it, it wasn't exactly priced aggressively. No, 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 no. From memory, I, I want to say it started at about 15 grand. And this was at the time where, you know, Yaris's and, uh, you know, Mazda 2's were sort of hovering around that price as well. Um, with automatic transmissions and um you mm. know the volkswagen up just just couldn't quite compete it was on sale for what two or three years before volkswagen pulled it but and it um, just it died was, a sad death it was just sort of ignored and disappeared yeah. i mean it was well ahead of its time it had things like um like low speed city aeb aeb yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. From a car that was ten years old, and um, it's getting a lot of love in the secondhand market. I myself have owned one for a few years. I know a few other journos have owned, uh, you know, who own ups as well. Matt um, Campbell, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So it gets a lot of love in the secondhand market, but I wish it sold better here. Just right. another case of the curse of the journo, though, Tom. So the journos all love the up, and and so no one bought it. Another <laughs> example of that was the Fiat Panda, which the journos <laughs> all raved about. It's incredible practicality and everything else, mate. You could not give them away. So yeah, the curse of the journo strikes. Hey, just just like the Fiesta ST we were talking about. Yeah, earlier, yeah, right? the, exactly. <laughs> well, even the World Wildlife Fund was doing its best to save the panda, and nothing, could, <laughs> nothing could keep it in the Aussie market. Um, well, the, the, the panda ran on actual pandas. Do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, the 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 one I'd like to add is it's closely related to the four C. I think it's it's 
feels like a, a slightly more evolved version of the 4C, and I love the 4C, which is the Renault Alpine. And, and it is just the sweetest, most composed, beautifully detailed um, little mid-engine sports car. And I, I seriously thought it would do better in this market uh, than it did, that it would capture the imagination of people and, and that it would not take off but, but sell in decent numbers, but it mm. just never did. Um, and Alpine as a brand was, oh, what is that? Is it a Renault? Well, it's a subsidiary and it's got Renault bits in it. And yeah. I think it was confusing and maybe there wasn't enough noise made about it. It's hard to invest big bucks in a, in a niche sport car, sports car like that. But I loved that car. I think it's mm. a dream to drive. Um, and it was, an, it was an unloved, absolute gem uh, as far as I'm concerned. More headlight issues, in my opinion, but that's uh, that's <laughs> I didn't like the front cluster, but that's my only complaint. Cool. All right. Well, that's good. Um, let's move on to cars that we've been driving more recently, um, the ones that are residing in our garage. And Tung, an interesting one that is talk about finding favour. Um, it's not hidden by any means. Uh, fill us in on what you've been steering. Uh, so a few days ago, I picked up an MGHS plug-in. Uh, and sure, it's only been in my care for a few days, but it's really blown me away. Um, I, I, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna put it out there. It might be the best Chinese car I've driven to date. Okay. Um, you know the powertrain. Look for the price that you're paying. Just under, I think it's about 46, 47 grand drive away um, with a plug-in powertrain that will give you, you know, 50 kilometers, around 50 kilometers of uh, all electric driving range, um, yep. and, you know, and a, a petrol engine to back that up. Um, the, the technology that you get in there, it's not, the, the powertrain is great. The interior is okay, mm. but for the price that you pay, it's fantastic. It's a, yeah. it's a great value bundle. Yeah, well, I mean, you're not alone in that sentiment. Um, hmm. MG's gone from from seller to penthouse, really, yeah. in terms of sales. Has top ten brand now. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Speaking of unloved vehicles that deserve more attention, you can pretty much put any plug-in hybrid on that list, to be honest, because yep. that, that is a technology that just has not captured the the imagination of Australia yet. Too much effort. It's, it's, not, it's not as easy as a just a inline do-it-yourself hybrid, you know, Toyota style. I reckon it's not as sexy either. You know, Toyota no. sort of captured the hybrid market. There's something really sexy about going electric in much the same way that you want to park a premium brand on your driveway. You, you yep. want to go electric. Plug-in mm-hmm. hybrid is this kind of hidden middle step that no one has quite embraced yet, but I hope they do. You, you, you say it's a middle step, but, you know, I've, I've not had to use the petrol engine at all. No. Nice. You know, how, how many times yes. are you driving 50 kilometres, uh, you know, in one trip? I, I agree. Use all the juice. I had yeah. a uh, I had a Mitsubishi Outlander Fev, uh, and I, dr- I drove it from Friday to Tuesday morning without once having the engine turn on, and I was and I was actually super excited by it. I was like, this is awesome. Yes, so, um, yeah, it, it's kind of yeah. You're right. It's not really a middle step, or it shouldn't be considered a middle step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes so much sense. All right, well, thank you, Tung. Uh, now, Chesto, we're going to move on to you. Very fresh, uh, freshest fresh metal because you've only just driven these, <laughs> and and the story is up on the site. Fill us in. Yeah. Reviews live today on the Cars Guide website and YouTube. And sadly, JC, I would like to give you a bit of stick for driving something premium while I've been in something work <laughs> every day. But unfortunately, today it is the Audi Q5 and SQ5 Sportback, um, which basically just continues Audi's uh, tradition of sportifying their uh, their SUV range. So essentially, if you know the Q5, then you, you kind of know the Q5 Sportback. Lots of similarities throughout. In fact, the front half of the car is is very similar. It's only from the B pillar back where the roof rakes and you get that sort of sportier mm. rear end arrangement. 
But the thing that I'll call out about it, I won't bore you with all the specs and details, but the thing that I'll point out is that actually what they've done, which I think is really clever, is they've managed to sort of sportify the design without actually costing much in the way of practicality. Rear roof space is only shrunk by 16 mil, 1.6 centimetres in the back. So I'm 175 centimetres, had plenty of headroom. It's a really yep. spacious back seat. And then even at the boot, despite the, the raking of the, uh, of the rear end, even the boot's only 10 litres smaller at 500 litres versus 510 litres. So it's easy to kind of make a car look more sporty, more difficult to do it while keeping it every bit as spacious and practical. But Audi has done that here, and it's a Q5 was a really solid offering in that segment. The Q5 Sportback is too, though it's yep. more expensive. You do pay it more to look better. Oh, you pay more for less space as well. Yeah, yeah. marginally <laughs> less space, I talk, but more style. Cool. All right. Well, look, you know, back in your box, Jesto, because um, I've been steering a Merck S450L. So Merck S-Class, the, the Schweinklasse, um, <laughs> just under 270 grand. And it's a three-litre wow. turbo in line six, nine-speed auto, the formatic all-wheel drive system. There's another above it. I think it's the 560. So that's the big kahuna. And then you can have a Maybach if you want to go all out. JC, when was the last time you drove a car under 100 grand? Oh, look, mate, back in, settle down. Because um, in, in prior weeks, I've been in very much, you know, mass market, high volume vehicles. Um, it just happened to coincide with Chester being in the podcast. See if you can, see if you can figure that out, listeners. Go back and see when the last time JC really was in an everyday car. <laughs> Um, it's 270 kilowatts, which is enough, but 500 newton meters, which is really solid. And that's available from 1500 RPM, you know, yeah. that classic 1500 RPM turbo uh, pickup in pulling power. And of course, it competes with the A8 and the 7 Series and all of that limo type thing. And it's 5.3 meters long. So this L version is 100 millimeters, 10 centimeters longer than the, the standard 450. It's nearly two tons, 1.9 tons. It's goes without saying it's loaded it's just yeah. got every bell and whistle in the bell and whistle uh, factory um and i think on the plus side just little details like you talk about the stop start system in cars being imperceptible this one is the is just in, imperceptible it was operating i was looking at the rev counter but you could not tell when this thing kicked in and out it was just serene in the way it, it took off and yet it was using the stop-start system. The air suspension meant the ride was absolutely superb. It's super quiet. The safety is just top shelf, uh, plenty of power. It's got the lot. On the minus, I was really surprised that it felt in areas a bit cheap. Like it's got these um, flush-fitting door handles that when you unlock the car, they pop out yeah. and you can grip the handle. It could have moved and one of them even squeaked. Like, And wow. it was a... It was a chromed kind of plastic finish around them. It, your, your first physical contact with the car, like a handshake, yeah. and you, you grabbed the handle and it made a noise and it moved when it shouldn't. It wasn't metal. And you just went, mm. what? Mm. This is really oddball um, for a car in this part of the world. Um, and then when you open the doors, they're big and heavy. So using this handle, you did kind of notice it. So don't want to dwell on it too much, but it also feels like a big car. It's not wallowy, but it's a car to be driven in. This this mm. is not the car to drive, and you really have to see it through that lens. Mm. So it was it was interesting to play chauffeur for a week because um, <laughs> our, our two smallest kids were in the back ordering me around and looking at the DVD players and whatever. <laughs> that was that was heaps of fun. 
But um, yeah, it's one of those cars where it's loaded to the gills and uh, you're meant to sit in the back, probably yeah, see, not behind nav. the wheel. Did it have the 3D nav by any chance? The which one? Sorry. 3D nav, you know, the, the super special nav. Yes, and what's more, it had the 3D um, instrument cluster in front of you so that say you're playing your favourite music, yeah. the album cover comes up and it floats in this 3D yeah. environment between the Incredible. instruments. Or, Got to say, love, love the tech, but it didn't. It did leave me feeling a bit queasy that I had to switch it off. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was, look, I was, was going to ask: as a, you know, the S class is the technological flagship of Mercedes. Like, what is a tech feature that really blew you away that you haven't uh, seen in the car before? Do I? I don't think I can answer that question because much and all, as it had lots of things loaded in it, there wasn't mm. anything that really I hadn't seen okay. before. I don't want to sound blasé about it, but. I don't think there was any real icebreaker style. Wow, this is this is new and different. I think I've got one from because I, I drove that one myself, JC. Okay, I, I was impressed by its uh, and fifty percent impressed, fifty percent creeped out by its ability to read your facial expressions. So, uh, for example, you know, in a, in, in a car where you might select the right or left rear view, uh, sorry, wing mirror to adjust. Hmm. In in the, in the S class, you simply look at the one you want to adjust. Or if you, oh, wow. if you look at the if you look at the rear, you can you, you can do the sunroof kind of thing. So sort of knows where your eyes are going and, and thinks for you. I mean, the car would be confused because you're so often in a rage. You'd be, yeah. you'd be <laughs> you know, bared teeth and and shouting. So I don't know whether it'd be adjusting the mirrors or applying the brakes. Yeah, yeah this is one header doesn't want to get in. Believe me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now let's just move on to some feedback that we had from last week. And um, the primary subject, Chester, was built around a story of yours, which was looking at Toyota's resurgent in in terms of sports cars and the next one off the rank potentially being an MR2. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had a a, a render of that that car. Now, Fat Man Overlanding, he, he spoke for a lot of people when he said, all right, bring it on. Toyota's bringing sexy back. Bring back the MR2 and Celica nameplate. A modern-day GT4 Celica would be brilliant. Just make it a real Toyota so he doesn't want a shared model with Subaru or, or with BMW. I think just, uh, we had a story this week where you found uh, a render of what could be coming. Yeah, so new, new Celica. So, look, I'll give you a tiny bit of background on this whole thing. What we do know is that, and they've been saying it for years, is that Toyota want to have a three-brother performance strategy. <clears throat> the only question is what the third brother will be. So you've mm. got Super at one end. 86 and then a third vehicle, whether that's the MR2, which is supposed to be smaller than the 86 or, or a new Celica. Um, yep. either, either way, they're talking about it being a platform share with, in much the same way that Super is with BMW or 86 is with Subaru. Um, they, they've, they've even talked brands like Porsche and Lotus for, for a platform yep. share with. I mean, and when I say they've talked about it, they've mentioned those brands as brands they'd like to partner with, not that they are partnering with them. But one thing we do seem to know for certain is that there is another Toyota performance car coming. The question at this point is whether it'll be an MR2 or a Celica. Either of the renders that we've dug up so far look unbelievable. So at this point, they could do whatever they want. (laughs) Well, Miracle Beam uh, determined that um, the chassis uh, will potentially be the Lotus Emira. Yeah. uh, And Toyota will be the cheaper Emira with hybrid option. So why not? And Con, C-O-N, collecting of of nostalgia, says, uh, yes, thanks, Toyota. Toyota, thank you. So there's a lot of positivity around Mm. this. However, GeoBloke raised the spectre of, didn't Honda make a hybrid sports car with a V6 that worked out really well for them? 
Um, now, <laughs> that's slightly different, though. Yeah, yeah, they totally agree. Different, yes, different that, that's a different part yeah. of the market. Yeah. Um, but we know we're talking about the NSX. And, and for me, that was a car that was made, it was difficult to work out the purpose because yeah. the NSX back in the day was a real statement from Honda that we can do things mm-hmm. differently and we're going to do a V6 and it's going to be light and it's aluminium and all that stuff. Whereas this new NSX, yes, hybrid and, and whatever, but it felt like a McLaren, which feels like a, it just didn't have anything that set it apart. And it was a mm. way expensive car. Like you're on your way to I, half a million bucks, I think. And those cars just do not excite me as anywhere near as much as affordable performance. Focus I, ST. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or, yeah. Like a prime example is like I, I would rather be driving a GR Yaris around a racetrack than, than, than almost anything else because the, the amount of fun and, and excitement you can squeeze out of that vehicle without feeling like you're going to kill yourself is incredible, you know. So that's that, interesting. And that's the, that's the end of the market that Toyota will be challenging again. Mm-hmm. It's all about this sub-six-figure performance. Sure. Hey, Chester, well, you know, a, a new MR2 could be the spiritual successor to the Alpha 4C that you've yeah. been uh, hey. fighting for. You know? hey. But we all looked at- too soon for a spiritual successor. <laughs> any any um any iteration of the MR2 previously, except that that most recent uh, that convertible version, yeah. Yeah. Um, the mid-engine, the first really angular little one, um, yeah. and then the one that followed it. Yeah, it was your cut price. Absolutely. Mini Ferrari mid-engine kind of thing. Heaps of yeah. fun. Yeah. Um, all right. Now, uh, then we go to Grudlin uh, 74. Great podcast. Uh, thank you, Grudlin. I personally think it's time Toyota took the next electrifying step and go full electric. Hybrid's been with us 20 years, perhaps not a two-door sports car. Like the ID3, it needs to have broader appeal and hold your fire because Lofty Visions also said, great podcast again, fellas, with a thumbs up. Thank you, Lofty. Um, While I do love the idea of a new number two, personally, I think a new small electric hot hatch to rival the i20N, Fiesta ST, upcoming baby Tesla, would be much more exciting and no doubt more popular. GRE Starlet, anybody? <laughs> so, you know, yeah. could it could it be an electric option that that really stands this vehicle apart? Look, but potentially, I don't think anyone's quite cracked the weight issue mm. yet of um of of EV supercars. But I, I, there's also an argument that, and look, call me a dinosaur if you will, but you're a dinosaur. Thank you. Isn't there an argument as well that that if we all go EV in our everyday life, if if every Camry and and i30 and Mazda three are electric, can't we just reserve a few <laughs> yeah. turbo petrol engines for performance cars? Can't we just, can't we just have yeah. a couple going around? It's, you know, it's interesting. We'll get to it shortly, but uh, yes, there's there's a dichotomy at the moment in terms of particular brands and the the breadth of their offering. Mm-hmm. Um, from what would seem to be dinosaur style uh, motivation to very much leading edge, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah we, the money the money talks pretty strongly in these situations, unless you're actually regulated um, out yeah. of the market. But um, it's also worth pointing out that an e starlet would be a very expensive proposition. Bat- mm-hmm. Batteries are expensive, you know, that's and a pretty pretty tough badge to uh, resurrect as a performance. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, Bill Catapotus, love the show as usual. Thank you, Bill. Um, all the regular contributors seem to agree. Yes, it would seem so that we're getting a bit of positive feedback. That's great. On the main topic of why Toyota would go down the path of creating a third sports car, makes last week's discussion on Mazda, and we were talking about Mazda's proliferation of um, SUVs, makes it look logical in comparison. Like Matt, I think it doesn't make much sense. 
Um, Hammer Rocks actually chipped in and said, can't Toyota do both? Can't they be the super reliable, um, traditional and have this sporting flavour to their their kind of portfolio um, to broaden it out? He says, an all-electric MR2, most definitely. Does the biggest car company in the world need any more ICE Halo models? I don't think so. As discussed by others here, I'd devote resources on trying to bury the electric Jesus car company, I think he's referring to Tesla, (laughs) rather than resurrecting fossil-fueled sports cars. Um, So there's another devotee or or someone promoting the idea of an electric MR2, um, which is interesting in that that there are a lot of enthusiasts uh, who are sports car lovers, I imagine, that listen and watch to this podcast, and there they are promoting the idea of an electric MR2. Um, Peter Pan, Peter Panusis, our friend uh, Peter Pan. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Another scintillating episode. Scintillating. Scintillating. Oh, That's a fantastic word. I'd l- now, this is on the electric theme. I'd love your thoughts on the news that Hertz placed an order for 100,000 Teslas mm. and possibly even double that. I can't get my head around these astronomical numbers. Elon is a money-making machine. And as background, I'd say Elon has since said that there's nothing actually signed, but it's clear that Hertz is going to buy a lot of Teslas. Um, and and it, sent, it sent Tesla's market cap over a trillion dollars, Yeah, so, uh, which is extraordinary. But can you guys see that playing out 100,000 uh, you know, Teslas to Hertz? Well, I don't know when they'll get them. <laughs> Because the, the, the capacity is not there to do uh, yeah. that right at this minute. That's true. That's so. What they say is, um, I was reading something the other day about Tesla. Tesla's problem has never been sales; it's been production. So to, yeah. to, to find another hundred, I think it's one hundred and fifty thousand cars now that are going. They're supposed to be going to Hertz. Yeah, um, is is a challenge. As to why Hertz is doing it, to me, that's really obvious. You know, we talked before about how uh, Australia is less competitive than we think because Toyota sells so many cars here that they. they sort of hive off so much of the market for themselves. That's Tesla and EVs. You know, when we talk about Tesla's uh, electric sales improving in Australia, I can't, the percentage would have to be 90% would be Tesla's of of every EV. Totally. You have to think, right? So as far as Hertz is concerned, they'll they'll have the most, some of the most sought after cars in the world that people want to try and they're just curious about driving an EV. They They can go and rent one from Hertz. To me, it makes perfect business sense. Yes, I suspect you're right, Chester. You know, et cetera. I, I doubt that you know um, that the entire order is going to be fulfilled anytime soon. Um, no, that's right. It'd be something that would play out over over years, and it's yeah. a commitment. Uh, but uh, it's just a big statement, and everyone went, "Whoa!" It's, it's, right. it's quite that's, obvious why Hertz picked Tesla, though. You know, they they want those headlines. They want yeah. outlets like ours to uh, report on them and to you know give them yep. a bit of airtime. That's right. Well, CIM crew says Motor Trend Project X is doing an EV57 Chev. Um, would make Louis Chevrolet turn in his grave. This is where we're talking about e-swaps. JC would be livid. I am a, I am livid, actually, <laughs> CIM crew. Um, and it was interesting, though. I had, was blissfully unaware of Project X. This is something that started in 1965 where um, a, an old Chev was bought. And let's just see what we can do in terms of upping its performance over time. And it's still going now. So it's about to get a GM E-Crate system, a a prototype system dropped into it. It's had any number of engines, gearboxes, whatever, over time. Mm -hmm. And now it's going to be E-swapped. And at SEMA, which is on now, right this minute as as we're recording and uh, when this podcast goes to air, Ford's put in an F-150 E-swap called the Illuminator. Illuminator. 
with the marquee crate motor in it. So I, I'm not a fan of e-swaps, but um, Greg Burville came up with an interesting point, which I find hard to disagree with. He says, interesting when Mal suggested a Citroen DS as the perfect candidate for classic car electrification. He says, the 1997 classic sci-fi movie Gattaca, set in the not-too-distant future, featured just that, an electric, electrified 1971 Citroen decapitable, uh, driven by the luscious Uma Thurman. A great number of other futuristic-looking classics were also featured, including Rover 3500, Studebaker Avanti, and Volvo P1800E. And Birdie chimes in and said, a design made for electrification. And I can see that. I can absolutely see that. A Citroen DS convertible to decapitable with an electric motor. It was futuristic yeah. in the 50s. It's still futuristic now. I can totally see that. So, um, yeah. And and just to round things off, Bertie kept, uh, kept on going and he wanted to clarify things around the blue light disco. This has been a running theme. Mm-hmm. Um, he was an attendee, I think, in rural Victoria um, in the 80s. He said it was an under-18 Saturday night disco organised by the police, yes, hence the blue light uh, thing, obviously alcohol-free and heavily supervised, playing all the hits from Duran Duran to the Sunny Boys. And TGV, the very fast train, said 1982 blue light disco in Blacktown, New South Wales. Uh, memories. Geez, that is almost 40 years ago. So I, I was an attendee at Blue Light Discos and uh, Kangaroo Street Manly. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, plenty on the Central Coast too in New South Wales. Discovering, discovering yourself through uh, those, I've been those events. No, I'm, <laughs> you, got, you got kicked out a couple of times for discovering. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> now, uh, with that, we have reached the finish line. So I want to say thank you, Chester. Thank you, everyone. And, and thank you, Tom. Thank you. And thanks to our emoji translator, Pet Detective, and former child, Mr. Pritchard, for keeping this podcasting ship afloat and on course. Today, he's wearing a T-shirt reading, I didn't say it was right, I said it would work. Uh, Elizabethan britches and feet shoes. Extraordinary, but uh, people on YouTube will know what I'm talking about. You don't see enough britches these days. Britches, I think it's making a comeback, thanks to Mr. Pritchard. <laughs> Uh, jump into the conversation. Cars Guide is on Facebook and Instagram or email us at comments at carsguide.com.au. Apple podcast listeners, uh, podcast listeners, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Five stars is the preferred rating. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. Um, if you enjoyed the episode, make sure to subscribe to the Cars Guide YouTube channel so you can stay on top of all our latest content. But before we go, uh, mate of mine in London told me um, he's been looking for a cheap used car, just something to get him from A to B. Only problem is he lives in Q. <laughs> oh, <God>. oh, Lord. <laughs> oh.